0: I want you to think for a second about the last time you forgave someone. Was it hard? How did it make you feel? Or what about the person you forgave? I'm J.R. Jameson. Today on The Facing Project, we'll explore these questions and more, and I'll share the story of a mother in Indiana who forgave the man who paralyzed her son in a car accident, and another from a woman in Kansas who forgave her once-absent mother and abusive brother. Later, I'll be joined by Dr. Robert Enright, who is named by Time Magazine as the top researcher on forgiveness. Stay with us as we discuss the psychology of forgiveness. Forgiveness is a word that is sometimes thrown around a lot. In fact, when I was growing up in a religiously conservative community, I heard, you must ask for forgiveness every time the church doors were open, which in my case was Wednesday night, Saturday night, Sunday morning, and Sunday night. And during the in-between times when I wasn't in church, I heard the phrase from those around me every day. It was almost like forgiveness was a word I couldn't escape. Whether it was my mom and dad, grandparents, teachers, I couldn't get far without someone saying something like, your brother said he was sorry, you need to forgive him. Or, good little boys don't act that way, say you're sorry for what you did. And for the record, it must be stated that I was a pretty good kid. Well, most days. But anyhow, the older I got, forgiveness began to feel like an everyday motion with little meaning. And there were many instances when I said, I forgive you, and I didn't mean it. Honestly, the words meant nothing. Typically, these were pains of the heart, times when friends or loved ones talked behind my back or stole from me or cheated on me, and being taught to forgive, I did just that. Sort of. Because like I said, words are cheap, but actions go deep. That was until 2013, when I met the late Eva Kaur for the first time. If you don't know who Eva was, do me a quick favor and Google her. But if you aren't willing or able to do that, I'll give you a quick history. Eva was a Holocaust survivor. When she was five years old, she and her twin sister Miriam, along with their mother and father and two older sisters, were forced from their home in what is present-day Romania by the Nazis and eventually taken to Auschwitz, where the twins were separated from their family. She and Miriam never saw them again. During their time at Auschwitz, Eva and Miriam fell into the hands of Dr. Mingala, who conducted research studies on twins for Adolf Hitler. And by research, I don't mean simple observations. I'm talking about torture. I'll leave the details to your Google search. Miraculously, though, Eva and Miriam survived and were liberated by the Red Army in January of 1945. So, fast forward to 2013. Eva was on a speaking tour to promote her book, Surviving the Angel of Death, The True Story of a Mingla Twin in Auschwitz, that was co-authored by Lisa Rosani, and Eva made her way through my community. I gathered in the packed 4,000-seat auditorium and watched from the nosebleeds as this little old woman shared what was done to her and her family. And let me tell you, there wasn't a dry eye in that audience. And then she said something that was almost unbelievable. She forgave the Nazis and Dr. Mingala for everything that had been done to her. You could have heard a pin drop in that cavernous space. But trust me, she was sincere. I got the wonderful opportunity to get to know Eva and spend quality time with her in 2016 and again in 2018. And she was the real deal. She made it her life mission to convince others that forgiveness is necessary for healing. In her own words, she said, Forgiveness is not so much for the perpetrator, but for the victim. Eva spent the remainder of her life traveling the world and promoting forgiveness until the day she died at the age of 85 in 2019. Getting to know and understand Eva made me realize that if this woman can forgive the Nazis, for everything that was done to her and millions of others, forgiveness can be more than an everyday word without meaning. It can be life-altering. So, today we'll explore forgiveness. I'll share the stories of two women, one who forgave the man who paralyzed her son in a car accident, and another who forgave her once absent mother and abusive brother. And then I'll be joined by Dr. Robert Enright who was named by Time Magazine as the leading researcher on the psychology behind forgiveness. And he and I will talk about the science and emotional and physiological impact of sincere apologies and acceptance. Due to strong language and content that may be disturbing to some, listener discretion is advised.
1: Stopping to Forgive, Greg Zagunda's story as told to Stephanie Fisher by his mother, Beverly Zagunda, performed by Katie Wolfe. If I told you, take it one day at a time, what does that mean to you? What does you need to forgive mean? It meant nothing to me years ago until I experienced it. We learned the meaning of those cliches, me, my husband John, my son Greg, and my family, a day at a time. Days in the hospital, days waiting for a little boy to wake up from a coma, days of physical therapy. Days of prayer. Days of joy in a cottage on a lake with children and grandchildren. If you listen, I'll tell you the story of how I learned to take life one day at a time. I'll tell you how I learned to forgive. But first, let me start with the present. Our days in retirement now seem busier than when we were young. In the morning, John takes care of Greg's breakfast and shower. Greg always wakes up at 6 a.m., And then I take care of his clothes and teeth cleaning, nails, all those little things. Then John drives him to Hillcroft. He's been there for 36 years now. Greg has friends at Hillcroft. He had a girlfriend for a little while. We have dinner in the evenings together or go to a game. It's fall now. Volleyball season is coming up. The accident. It also happened in the fall when Greg was 11. He was very, very bright. A straight-A student, high IQ. He was involved in church. In fact, he was a lector. Greg was in the hospital a year and a half. First, he was taken to Parkview in Fort Wayne. Then he came here to Muncie, to Ball. Then he went to Community. No, wait. First, he went to Riley. It's hard to remember the timeline exactly. He was unconscious for almost a year before he went to Riley. Then he went to rehab at Community East. When we brought him home, he was still in a wheelchair, still in diapers. But he made a lot of progress after we brought him home. Years of speech and occupational therapy and physical therapy. At that time, he went back to school at Morrison Mock. The school had a wonderful physical therapist who worked there, Jenny I had a full-size van with a lift for his wheelchair, and when I went to pick him up from school one day, he, he walked out to the van. Everybody was out there, the whole school. It was a surprise because I didn't know he was walking. That was three years after we brought him home. He was 16 when he learned to walk again. Now, if we go somewhere, like a volleyball game, we take his wheelchair, but here at home... Greg can walk with assistance. We're really thankful he understands most things and has an even-tempered personality. He's social, happy. He likes to be with people. Greg only speaks about 12 words, but he understands everything. We have a lot to be thankful for. When he was in the hospital, we had a tape recorder playing right by his ear, all the time with our voices and his brother's voices. We wanted him to have as much stimulation as possible. You know, the nurses were in and out, and the doctors only saw him once a day, so we saw things before they did. And then one day, I was sitting in his room, and he had some toy trucks on a tray up high. He was reaching for them. I said, "'Are you trying to get those, Greg?' And of course, he couldn't say anything. So I handed the toy trucks to him, and I could tell he was glad." I would tell the nurses, and they would chart it. And the doctors, they would shake their heads and say, That didn't happen. We read articles that said the more stimulation they have, the better. And so, that's what we did. We asked the nurses if Greg could be taken outside on a gurney. There was a fountain in the courtyard. They were happy to do it. They were wonderful. But of course, you have to have an order from the doctor. The nurses would say, We've asked the doctors, and they won't give an order. They think it's insane. They think it's silly. So John called the doctor, and honest to God, they went round and around and around. They did. The doctor wasn't even nice about it. He said, "I'll write your um, order," and he did. It wasn't two weeks after they started taking him outside that you could see him coming around. Was it a coincidence? Was it timing or did it help? I still don't know. And the doctors realized, you know what? He's coming out of this coma. But yeah, the accident itself. We haven't talked about that yet. Greg was with a group of Boy Scouts. They were coming back from camp. It was a station wagon loaded down with kids. This was before minivans. The scout leader ran a stop sign at Highway 3 and 218. I've asked him this many times. Greg, did you see the car coming? Do you remember? Yes, he remembers it. Greg and his friend EJ had an argument that day over who got to sit by the door. Greg won the argument. You know, a lot of the kids and his friends shied away from Greg after the accident. But not EJ. EJ. E.J. would come over, and he would take pictures of the two of them and develop the film himself. Later, he went to Notre Dame for college, but he would always come back and see Greg. The other car that hit them, the one that T-boned the Scoutmaster's car, they were an older couple. They both died instantly. I really struggled with this Boy Scout leader for a long time, and I knew I had to forgive. We were taught in the Lord's Prayer that we have to forgive, but... I just couldn't do it. Someone told me, write a note. Tell him how you feel. I wrote him a note. So as far as he knew, I had forgiven him. But I didn't believe a word I said. Then one day, I ran a stop sign. It wasn't that long ago. Four years? Five, maybe? I was coming back from church. I don't know what I was thinking about. Preoccupied, I guess. These two Ball State students were going through the intersection. I'm in a big Tahoe, and they're in this little itty-bitty thing. I about took the front end off of it. But you know what? Those girls were okay. If I had hit them further back in the car, I don't know what would have happened. It was my fault. I told the police right away it was my fault. I felt horrible. But I forgave that Boy Scout leader immediately. I thought, how quickly and how innocently something like that can happen. You know, when Greg was so critical, everyone told us, take it a day at a time. That didn't have any meaning then. But almost 40 years later, we've had a rich life. Work, friends, weddings, grandchildren, and the lake. Family traditions have grown up around us. We say, The lake is where we can pack a little luggage, but leave our baggage behind. Perhaps another cliche, but it means everything to me.
2: What I Know About Me, an anonymous story as told to Bev Nye, performed by Tiffany Irk. Back when I was just a little kid, my older brother and a couple of his friends decided to give me liquor. I guzzled it down, faster than milk. But my brother's friend said, don't do that. What if she gets addicted? What will your mom say? My brother told him our mama was out doing her own drug dealing. Besides, he thought I was her favorite, and that really pissed him off. Then when I was 10, Mama and I were in a store and she was having me try on shoes before school started that fall. I remember her saying, put these shoes on and do it quietly. I told Mama they felt funny. She insisted they were fine and that we were going to walk out of that store. Just keep quiet, she said. That clerk won't notice a thing if you don't call attention to yourself. Looking back at this now, I have to laugh. Two left shoes. That is what she made me shoplift that day. Two left shoes. When I was 11, I walked in on Mama looking on the empty cupboards and talking to herself. There was nothing in there. We still had six more days until the welfare check came, but then the welfare check was never enough anyway. It was $400 and 300 of that went to rent. Mama said, how am I supposed to keep us living around here on $400 a month? She sighed and told me to grab the ketchup, and she grabbed spaghetti noodles, and we had the best supper ever. She taught me how to survive, and I don't blame her for selling drugs on the side to get us by. By the time I was 13, my brother had me prostituting myself in order to make more money for our family. Yep, I sold my body. One good thing came out of that, though, my son Tom. I'm 35 years old now, and two years ago I looked in the mirror and realized I was poor and an addict, and I was so tired of being both. I told my girlfriend Jane that I had to quit using heroin and meth, but I wasn't sure how I was ever going to manage that. But she kept telling me that I could get clean. A few weeks after quitting drugs, I felt terrible. I was freezing. Everything in my body was shaking. I kept saying, I don't think I can do this. I really wanted to go back on the drugs. Jane would hold my hair and wipe my face as I was vomiting. She kept encouraging me, telling me, no you don't. You can get free of the drugs and I will help. Neither of us wanted to go back to that kind of life again. I was so tired of being a slave to meth and heroin. I was so tired of not being able to pay our bills. I've been clean now for two years. I can make things happen. I'm a problem solver. I got that from my mama. (laughs) Honestly, my past molded me. If it wasn't for all the bad stuff, I wouldn't be where I am today. I have forgiven myself and others who have done me harm. And I have that forgiveness today because of my loving partner, Jane. Someday I want to be a drug and alcohol counselor, and someday I will.
0: I want to welcome to the show Dr. Robert Enright, Professor of Educational Psychology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and co-founder of the International Forgiveness Institute. Dr. Enright is a pioneer in the scientific study of forgiveness, which now claims over 1,000 researchers worldwide, and he is the author of seven books and over 100 publications centered on social development and the psychology of forgiveness. Dr. Enright's work has been featured in numerous print and visual outlets, including Time Magazine, the Los Angeles Times, the Chicago Tribune, and ABC's 2020. Dr. Enright, thank you for joining me.
3: It's an honor to be with you, JR. I want to start
0: with your research. You found that forgiveness can reduce anger, bitterness, resentment, depression, and can even create an overall healthier person. Tell me more.
3: Well, when we started this in 1985, much of psychotherapy dealt more with what I would call techniques, a way to think in a new way make that which is unconscious conscious. And my thought was, but how do people climb up out of the pit, when they've been deeply and unjustly treated by others. And the idea of forgiveness kept coming up for me. And I thought, well, you know, this might be a very powerful way of healing a resentment that can actually literally stay with us for the rest of our lives. But that was only an idea. Because when I went to the library then, couldn't do a Google search in 1985, there were no published studies at all, ever, in the 100-year history of psychology on the topic of forgiveness. So I started a a Friday forgiveness seminar with a lot of students from different countries of the world, and we came up with a process for how to forgive and have done randomized experimental and control group research, and the rest is history.
0: Mm. And so that change in attitude and physiology, that has to be good for the overall health of an individual, right? So would you say that forgiveness is a form of the fountain of youth?
3: Well, it definitely helps us reclaim that which was taken away from us as the effects of injustice when we've been treated terribly unjustly by others, it's not just the injustice. We can't go back and fix that. We can't build a time machine. But what happens to us, and so many people are unaware of this, the effects such as fatigue, thinking over and over about this, anger that can build up to hatred, that can actually eat away at my happiness, that can actually lead eventually to to anxiety and depression, all of that can be cured when a person decides <clears throat> to be good to those who are not good to them. It sounds outrageous, and it is a paradox that when you engage in deliberately, not excusing, but trying to be good to the other without throwing justice under the bus, it is the one who forgives who does experience healing in these ways, mm-hmm. With Lower anxiety, anger, and depression. We even did a cardiac study of men on a cardiac unit of a hospital, and there was more blood flow through the heart once they forgave. Interesting. And Dr. Douglas, yes, Dr. Douglas Russell, who was the physician in charge of this, said we helped them avoid chest pains and sudden death. So while it might not be the fountain of youth, they got better heart functioning because they forgave. And it's the first. Cause and effect study in the history of the world showing forgiveness leads to or causes a change in a major organ of the body.
0: That's interesting. And also a point connected to that, it's making me think about forgiveness's role in peace, We're living in a time of deep political and cultural divides where folks have drawn lines in the sand, deleted old friends off of social media, and in some cases outright disowned their own family members. What role does forgiveness play in correcting the course for our nation?
3: Well, if people would be willing to forgive and know that they're not going to have to give up their stance, give up even their ideologies, their political views, because forgiveness doesn't ask you to do that. You know what happens, JR, when a person forgives? You begin to see the humanity in the other, Mm -hmm. not because of what the other did, but in spite of that. Mm -hmm. When we begin to see a full person, not just saying, well, you're a Democrat, or you're a Republican, or you do this, or you do that. There's more to persons than what they do to us. And forgiveness challenges us to expand the story. And if we can do that, and so if we could sit down at the peace table or even before we press the send button in Facebook, and we say, you know, that is a human being on the other side of this social media. This is a human being on the other side of this peace table. Do you think our communication would then be a little more civil? Yes, why? Because we're not dealing with someone who's evil incarnate. We're dealing with personhood. And that's what I really, really like about forgiveness. It recaptures the personhood in the other who hurt me. And at the same time, you know whose personhood is also recaptured? Mm -hmm. My own as forgiver. Because what we find is when you've been traumatized by others, people tend to, what I say is, Live the lie to to believe the lie, and actually take on the lie that others are throwing at us, so our self esteem goes down. Mm. We find that when people forgive others, extend goodness to those others, and see the personhood in the other, our personhood is restored, and that can make all the difference in our health. In what you're saying is the fountain of youth. Mm-hmm.
0: I'm curious to know. I you know I see folks post different pieces on social media about not forgiving. And so I'm curious to hear your thoughts on what would you say to someone who feels that forgiveness is a harmful form of toxic positivity?
3: I would say what I like most about forgiveness, or if not the most, something I really, really like about it, we don't have to engage in it. Mm -hmm. It is a moral virtue where you're good to those who aren't good to you. But there are a lot of moral virtues out there, like justice, And with certain forms of justice, we have to be just. If you don't stop at the stoplight, you're going to get punished. You're Mm -hmm. going to get a ticket. If you don't forgive, no one is going to punish you. No one's going to throw you in jail. That's what I like about it. If someone is not ready to forgive, nobody should force that. Nor should we condemn a person who doesn't forgive, nor should we forgive someone who does if we don't want to. We need that kind of freedom to let each of us find our own pathway when we've been brutalized by others. So if someone says, I'm not ready for this, it's really bad, I say, that's your choice. But I also would ask this, are you understanding forgiveness correctly? Are you, for example, confusing it with reconciliation, Hmm. where you might be saying, Enright, you're dangerous because you're asking me to go back into a partnering relationship that was very abusive to me. Stop it. Well, forgiveness and reconciliation aren't the same thing. You can forgive from the heart, see the personhood in the other, smile, say something good about the person, and still not reconcile. Mm -hmm.
0: What would you say on the other side of the spectrum to someone who feels that forgiveness is the answer to every problem or issue?
3: Well, I would say, as long as you don't impose that on the rest of us, that's fine. But if the person says, this is the pot of gold, and now if you don't do that, then I'm going to reduce your personhood in my mind, I would say you're giving an intemperate view to what forgiveness is. But if the person says, for myself, I have tried forgiveness, and I see that it quiets the rage inside, it helps me connect person to person with the other and with myself, and as Aristotle said, we end up with a love of the virtues we practice, and if that person developed a love of virtues, I would say, great. Mm-hmm. And I would not condemn that person, even though others might, and say, what's wrong with you? Well, that person might have walked this path very deeply and in a very long way, so they're qualitatively different than the rest of us. Let them have that joy, but let's not condemn others who are different in this regard. Mm -hmm. We were
0: talking offline before we started uh, our conversation about how forgiveness is not really taught, especially to young people. Tell me more about that.
3: Well, we do forgiveness education, and it took me a long while. I'm a slow learner, JR. We started studying forgiveness in 1985, but it wasn't until the turn of the century that the light bulb went on. And I thought, you know, we've helped a lot of adults who've been deeply traumatized by others to forgive and basically reclaim their lives. Why don't we prepare children when they're young to learn about forgiveness through stories, so that they become fortified in this, knowing what it is, knowing it's not reconciliation, not excusing, not abandoning justice, so that when the traumas of adulthood that can get very serious when they're 25, 35, or 95, they will then have this approach to be able to reclaim their lives rather than letting that fatigue and that anxiety and that rage live with them for the rest of their lives. What's the point of education Mm -hmm. to prepare for adulthood? Is it only to learn how to write a good sentence with a verb and a subject or to balance a checkbook? What about surviving brutality? I think we need forgiveness education. And we actually have forgiveness education materials from pre-kindergarten, age four, through the end of high school, age 18, And these have now been requested through our International Forgiveness Institute in over 30 countries of the world. Mm. Some people are starting to wake up to this.
0: Yeah. Well, as people often say, the youth will save us. The future is in their hands. So why not start?
3: Well, right, I mean, can't you imagine a qualitatively different way of seeking peace if they've been schooled in forgiveness that you and I can't imagine right now? Mm -hmm. They might have a very different way of talking with one another and working things out that's so different we can't imagine it. I mean, as an example, as an analogy, in 1980, did you and I ever imagine we'd be carrying around our phone in our pocket? Mm -mm. Well, no, and that's a qualitatively different form of communication that we didn't anticipate. How about schooling children in forgiveness, and then we get out of the way and see if they can find a path to peace that historically has never been tried? Mm
0: -hmm. Dr. Robert Enright, Professor of Educational Psychology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and co-founder of the International Forgiveness Institute, thank you for joining me.
3: Thank you so much for having me, Jr. More
0: can be found online about Dr. Robert Enright's work on the psychology of forgiveness at internationalforgiveness.com. Stories from today's episode came from facing disabilities in East Central Indiana and facing poverty in McPherson, Kansas. We want to thank Hillcroft Services and circles of McPherson County for organizing these two facing projects. Greg Zagunda's story as told by his mother Beverly was written in collaboration with Stephanie Fisher and was performed by Katie Wolf. What I Know About Me, an anonymous story, was written in collaboration with Bev Nye and was performed by Tiffany Erk. To listen to past episodes of this program, visit indianapublicradio.org slash The Facing Project. From there, you can subscribe to the podcast where you'll get episodes of The Facing Project delivered to your device each month, or just ask your smart speaker to play The Facing Project on NPR. Listeners can contribute stories or volunteer to share the stories of others that may appear on the show. More information at facingproject.com. To continue the conversation about this episode find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Facing Project. The Facing Project is recorded at Indiana Public Radio at Ball State University in beautiful and wonderful Muncie, Indiana, and is produced by the amazing producer and sound engineer extraordinaire, Sean Ashcraft. The show is distributed nationally through PRX. We are your hosts, Kelsey Timmerman and J.R. Jameson, and until next time, we wish you the courage to share your own story and the empathy to listen to others.